Welcome back to The Pilgrim Soul, a podcast about the journey of faith in the world of today. I'm your host, Juliana. And I'm Adriana. And I'm Sophia. And we're so happy to be joining you again for another episode. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about division. Mm. And this is a topic that has been, in particular, inspired by recent experiences that Sophia has had living in a foreign country, a country with an entirely different culture and history than your home country, as well as one with a different religious background and one where Mm -hmm. your particular religion has a very difficult history. Um, I think in general, would you agree with this, that in England, your experience has been that interactions between and encounters between denominations are much more fraught than they are here in the United States? Yeah, historically speaking, definitely. I think there's a big push toward ecumenism in the contemporary Christian scene here in England, which is beautiful, but also there's much room for growth there as well. I have experienced, I think, particularly in the last few months since the war in Ukraine erupted, a real awareness of division and conflict in English society among differing political groups, ideological backgrounds, religious affiliations, communities. And the question that has erupted in my heart um, since I moved here, as you mentioned in the first place, provoked by divisions in the body of Christ, which is a hugely painful wound for me, but also by all these other conflicts that I was mentioning, is what does it mean to have unity? And what can overcome division? And the answers that are often given to this question for me are deeply dissatisfying. And so I wanted to have an episode with the two of you to try to get to not maybe get to the bottom of it, because I don't know if we can do that in 40 minutes, but to just talk about our experiences of division and unity so as to try to give me a path for walking forward in my, I'm starting my final year here in the UK, and I want to live this well, um, seeking unity and overcoming division. So I thought I'd, I'd share a brief story of something that I experienced recently as an example or an image for this tension that I'm living in my life here. I had I had the privilege of attending a conversation uh, with someone who is, uh, let's say, very high up in another Christian denomination here in the UK. And there was a conversation about division and reconciliation. And I was really eager to go and really honored to be invited, particularly because of what's happening in Ukraine. I think Christians mm-hmm. around the world are thinking about what unity means. There was a lot that was really beautiful about the conversation. I mean, starting from the fact of there was a variety of Christians in the room, and this person spoke beautifully about his own work in the peace building space and the the space of reconciliation being something that starts from his own daily work of being reconciled to God. And so his own need for conversion. Um, But there came a, a moment in the conversation when I grew pretty deeply disappointed by an exchange that happened. He was asked explicitly about Ukraine. Like, what is this proposal that you have for overcoming division? What does that have to say to the people in Ukraine right now? And he said that reconciliation was for later. He abdicated. He said that only once people's lives were secured and their rights were respected and we could get people in the same room to have a a Mm. decent conversation, then this process of overcoming division could Mm. begin. Then we could think about reconciliation. And in listening to him, I was just struck by this huge sadness, just this huge lament in my heart, because if the peace that Christ came to bring isn't possible in Ukraine right now, then what's the use? Like, how is it any different from the peace of this world? Yeah. So for me, it was clear that this piece is so often reduced to a social 
work or a political strategy that we try to achieve, we try to overcome division through our own efforts. But that's not enough for me. That's never worked for overcoming division in my own heart, in my own family, in my own communities. What I need is something that can meet me in the midst of conflict and division um, and transform it there. And, and I'm almost done, but I was reminded of the words of Archbishop Paolo Pezzi, who is the Catholic Archbishop of Moscow. And he was talking about this conflict in Ukraine and spoke these incredibly challenging words that that the task of every Christian throughout the world right now is forgiveness and mercy in every circumstance. And he said that if the Ukrainian soldier on the front lines right now, looking down the barrel of his machine gun at the Russian that he's about to kill, if in the moment before he pulls the trigger, he doesn't beg for mercy in the awareness that this person he's killing belongs to the same mystery of God, that he's missed something, mm. that he's that he's living less than the fullness of reality and, and he's not taking seriously what he's doing. So for me, that is a much more compelling understanding of division, um, that there is a presence that can bring about a difference on the front lines in Ukraine right now. And so today I really want to explore what that means. Like, how is it that division is something that Christ has abolished, even as we continue to live in a world that's marked by violence and sin and conflict. So how is this possible? So I want to I want to hear from you mm-hmm. on this question. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I think this is a really rich starting point for us. I think I recognize in my own heart such a need for this understanding and such a, a longing mm. because of course globally there is this great suffering and great conflict. I think in the last few weeks in the United States, at the time we're recording, it's also been a time of deep violence against the human person, you know, in our backyards and a time where I have felt tempted to despair because if it were true that we would need to change society and engage in activism before we could have peace, that thought makes me want to despair because Mm -hmm. so much of what I see is, is beyond me. There's nothing I can do to change the circumstances politically and socially that are causing this deep suffering. And if we're talking globally, even more so, that's true. And so, as you were saying, a reductive view, it not only provokes in me a profound sadness, but also despair and anxiety because that would make the peace impossible. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate what you are both saying so much because I was so provoked by what you said, Sophia. If peace isn't possible in Ukraine right now, it's not possible in my own heart because we all experience injustice. And I'm not trying to conflate the injustice of Ukraine and Russia to my own minor injustices in my life. Yeah. But they are on the same line, far removed. And if it's not possible there, then it's not possible here. And two, I think it's so, on a secular level, incoherent to suggest Mm -hmm. reconciliation And it's either a paradox held up in the mystery of the cross that through this self-emptying death, peace and reconciliation can come about, or it can't. And it has to be united to the cross and that my own starting place in my life has to begin there. And I see that so radically in my own experience when I see the division in my heart and my own, Mm. my self-centeredness, my unwillingness to empty myself before the other and at the very least like see from their perspective and that's just sort of like a daily occurrence that happens in totally ordinary ways in married life and as a mother or as a 
dog mother, which has <laughs> I have often mentioned as the recent pebble in my shoe, <laughs> having a puppy, of like making a gift of yourself for someone or something that you don't feel inclined towards or don't want to. And the invitation to that, I think, is the beginning of peace. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for what you both said um, about the sociocultural and personal divisions that we experience. That very much resonates with my experience and I think draws out for me some of the themes of where we're in need of overcoming division, where we're in need of this impossible unity that only Christ can bring, only this movement of self-gift, Adriana, that you were saying can bring. Um, and I think I really see it in my own life wherever wherever there's dualism, you know, like dualism in the way that I approach my life. So when I put my work against my spiritual life or myself against my family, dualism in society where I'm like, oh, the church is over here. Everybody else is over there. Mm -hmm. What can overcome this dualism is not a strategy of reimagining was the word that this Christian figure kept using, reimagining. I can't reimagine a unity there. Like I need something to break into my reality and achieve it um, and abolish these false divisions that I set up within my life and within society. Yeah, I think a, a real model for me in what you're saying about dualism and the temptation to live with the other as other is Dorothy Day. Mm. You know, we've talked about before on this podcast but devoted her whole life to being with and among the poor and just recognized such a mutual belonging that was like the principle of her being in allowing her to attain unity in these situations of unimaginable difficulty that she doesn't shy away from or approach with sentimental piety. She's very honest and she doesn't shy away from that. Yeah. So she's a real model for me in thinking what you were saying. Mm -hmm. And also I've thought so much just about like really extraordinary acts of forgiveness that seem so impossible to me without Christ. And one example that just comes so quickly to mind is Immaculate Ilibagaza. She's a Rwandan genocide survivor who has found forgiveness and love for the men who are responsible for killing her mother and brother during the genocide. So much so that they themselves have had a conversion of heart and she can be with them and hug them and say, like, I love you to them. And there's, you know, a documentary about it that is imprinted on my mind because it's so radical and, like, incoherent if not for Christ. Totally. Dorothy Day came to mind to me too. And actually, I think another thing that she draws out for me is both that Self-giving love can abolish this division that dualism sets up, but it can also show the falseness of our reduction to power, that we so often treat one another according to these, this idea that we are in competition with one another and trying to establish hegemony over one another, and that if we can only defend our rights and what we possess and our ideas and our ideals well enough, we will finally be secure. Mm. It's this striving for power that pits us against one another. And I saw this devastatingly when I was in Jerusalem at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This place where that's where he was buried, and therefore that's where he rose. And yet the way that different denominations are treating the space make it clear that they see one another as enemies. 
They're, they fight over times, over who can use what space. They kick one another out. That's not diversity. That's truly division in the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And it's this zero-sum game of reducing everything, our interactions with one another to power and striving to, to cling. Whereas Dorothy Day, in emptying herself and realizing that she had a claim on nothing, mm-hmm. was able to possess the fullness of reality in a detached way. And so was able to overcome these power differentials that ordinarily would exist between someone like her and people who are experiencing homelessness on the street. That's a really powerful reflection. I'm thinking back to to my experience of reading the writings of Dorothy Day, and it's clear to me that her ability to live union with other people began in her own heart. Mm-hmm. And she was able to look at herself honestly, including her sin and her weakness and she didn't flinch from that. She didn't hide from it. She wasn't ashamed. Um, even where she was broken, where she had made mistakes, um, even very serious ones that caused other people to hate her. And this, I think, is a real weakness in my own heart. I don't see in myself the same ability to look at myself honestly and to look at myself as a daughter of God, a beloved daughter of God with eternal dignity I'm not I'm therefore not able to look at others that way, nor do I trust that they will be able to look at me that way. Mm. If I tear down the, those walls between me and the other and I allow myself to be vulnerable with them. And I think that this in my own heart and in my own life is a deep source of division. It's it's a wound from which all kinds of divides flow. I put up all kinds of walls. I think at the root of it is is a lack of trust in the Father's love for me and a lack of trust in the in the Father's love for the person in front of me. A weakness in my belief of our nature as his children, truly his children, the children that he has begotten and that he sustains and that he takes care of and that he'll welcome home. Yeah, that's really powerful, Julie, and resonates so much with me when I think about division. I just start with my own heart and have been trying in preparation for this episode to ask myself, like, where does division exist within me? Mm -hmm. And where are the places in my own heart where I don't have a tenderness and I can't approach myself with forgiveness and mercy? Because if those places exist, then there's no way I'm going to be able to approach someone else who maybe shares a similar wound with forgiveness and mercy, when I've already made an enemy of that sin in my own heart, mm-hmm. then they like just kind of by consequence have to be an enemy or treated with some sort of hostility or judgmentalism by me also. Yeah. And I think, yeah, why Dorothy Day is so compelling to me is she's so honest about her wounds and even honest about the ones that are unhealed and I think particularly the, her wound of abortion, um, which I know, you know, plagued her her whole life. To be able to be honest about that wound, I think was directly because she realized it was God who would bestow the mercy and she didn't have to fix it herself. And because it wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, healed or fixed, it wasn't like a, a place of shame, like it's my fault that I still have this wound. And I think in me, there's this turn to myself a turn to asking like, how is this going to be fixed instead of who do I follow and he'll show me. Yeah. Those are my thoughts. And that's led me a lot to thinking of my children who never ask how in terms of how something's going to be accomplished or if I offer a suggestion, they just assume I know (laughs) and they're young, you know? (laughs) Yeah. 
And what a beauty that is. Like, if only I could be like that with the father of these like great tasks that I think he puts before me or the small tasks of motherhood. I'm thinking like, how is it possible that we could welcome another child or I could handle a puppy? And instead, I should just be looking at who? Yeah. Who will help me to carry all of this? That's beautiful. And I love especially the connection you made to your own children, because as you were speaking about Dorothy Day, what came to mind was the attachment literature, the the strand of psychological research that studies the bonds between mothers and their children. I mean, parents and their children, but particularly mothers. And time and again, these studies have shown that the unity, the health, the wholeness, this integrity that we're talking about, that we so desire, this wholeness of self on the psychological level depends on the security of our attachment to our parents. Mm. So analogously in the spiritual life, you need to be secure in your rootedness in Christ as the one begotten by, loved by the Father and the truth of this love that we can then take risks and reach out to others without fear that we're going to remain empty or be abandoned. Um, So as you were saying, awareness of the Father, turning to who, who it is that I need. Yeah, and I think really if you're so living in the source of the Father's love, you're willing to be humiliated Mm. and willing to self-empty unto death for the sake of the love of the Father instead of the world. Yes, which brings to mind the Ugandan martyrs. I have been reflecting lately on their lives, and I'm just so amazed. I don't know if you know their story, but these... 19th century martyrs who were both Anglican and Catholic, they bore witness to Christ when this sort of tyrannical king was abusing and trying to force into apostasy his page boys. They preferred Christ. They loved him above all more than their own lives. And so they were wanted to affirm him, even if this meant joining Christ in a death like his. And this makes me think about my own thirst and my own wound for ecumenical unity, unity in the body of Christ, for Christ's church to really be one, as Jesus begs in in John 17. If I take this seriously and don't remain on the level of ideology, it's going to put me on the cross. Like by extending my hands, the priest in the homily the other day, my dear friend, Father Colin, used this image of by extending your hands to the people on either side of you, what you get is a cruciform life. Mm, Wow. Mm. So I guess this is my question. I see these beautiful models of unity in Christ our head, in the martyrs, in the stories that you were sharing, Adriana. How do I get there? Because I'm so poor in this. I stumble across particularly my emotions, anger, resentment, bitterness, hurt. And it would be really helpful for me, I think, if you could share experiences of moving from division to unity. Mm. So I have one. You mentioned, did you mention anger? Was that one of the emotions that you mentioned in your question? Yes, yes. Okay, well, I think I have a worse temper than you. I have a terrible, (laughs) terrible temper for our listeners. I probably only properly lose it once a year. Um, It used to be very frequent. That's not not terrible temper. (laughs) No, but when I lose it, it is a train wreck in flames. Like I burn bridges, bite people's heads off like... It is a sight to behold. Um, It is truly something that I am quite ashamed of. Um, Two times ago that I really lost my temper, it was during the first COVID lockdown here in the UK, and I was living in this house of 11 people at my college at Cambridge, and there was an event that happened between two of us. It was both of our faults, to be quite honest. There was a miscommunication. It was more my fault than his, but I lost my temper with him and was made it very clear to him. 
And that evening in self-isolation in my room, I realized what I had done. And I was so ashamed of having so lost sight of reality and driven this wedge between me and someone who was quite a dear friend who was accompanying me through through lockdown. We were sharing everything together at that point. And I was tempted to throw in the towel to honestly just try to find a different place to live. Like it was truly that disastrous what had happened. And it was only in prayer and in conversation with a wise mentor that I realized that that actually wasn't what the desire of my heart was. It wouldn't have been satisfying for me had I been able to leave and just pretend like this conflict had never happened. What I wanted actually was to be one with him again. And what what came into my heart and enabled me to go down the stairs and apologize to him when that was the last thing that I wanted to do was the memory of the price that Christ paid for my life. Because I was so full awareness of my sin against him, but I've learned over and over again that the abyss of my misery is met by the abyss of God's mercy, that my miserable sin is washed away by the blood of Christ. Catherine of Siena has this beautiful line. She commands people to bathe your memory in his overflowing blood. Bathe your memory in his overflowing blood. Mm. I was just sitting there with this line, like that price paid for my life was also paid for Mike's life. And only this mercy can dissolve the hostility that he feels towards me, the shame that I feel towards myself, because only this mercy shown to me can make me want to die for him and so humiliate myself by, you know, taking the blame for what happened between us and apologizing. And and so I did. I did begging to keep this memory in my heart. And it wasn't overnight, in part because he's not Christian. And I don't think that Outside of the Christian community, mercy and forgiveness is something that is regularly practiced in the world of today. There are, I'm sure, exceptions to it. Um, but I really, I really see a difference in this area. Anyway, so it wasn't overnight, but we eventually did reconcile. And for me, this is a constant reminder when I'm up against similar situations, usually of smaller magnitude, of disastrous sins of mine or difficulties in relationship with other people, to bathe my memory in the overflowing blood of Christ that he poured out for me and he poured out for the person in front of me. And so I can love the person in front of me knowing that if they were the only person in the world, Christ would have died for them. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Sophia, for that reflection. That's helpful to me. And your question, Juliana, is so helpful because it's just so relevant to my reality. And I don't know if it's COVID that has accelerated the shallowness of, of a cancel culture and also accelerated our cultural division. So both seem like at a forefront, but how that manifests in my relationships with my own like immediate neighbors who might hold very different political ideologies than me or religious beliefs and how I'm still called, especially in my neighborhood, to unity and to love my neighbors and to be with them, like incarnate, be present to them. And I have this desire and I see it in the secular world. And I'm kind of like, you know, we're all swimming in that water, desire and temptation to just like self-enclose, to live in tight, isolated worlds where they're like kind of echo chambers of my own opinions and ideologies. Yeah. Such a temptation. And Christ continuously calling me to a conversion of heart. And I guess when you were talking, Sophia, when you mentioned the possibility of reconciliation that occurred, despite, I think, the secular world's resistance to actual reconciliation, mm -hmm. it's because in the human heart, 
we have a longing for unity and we have a longing for peace that cannot be fully eradicated by sin and evil and division. And, you know, to go back to, I guess, Dorothy or models for me, like they've paid attention to that longing Mm -hmm. and let that drive them instead of all the other temptations to, you know, for me, self-enclose, avoid, to instead like go back to that longing as my starting point that I desire unity. I'm made in the image and likeness of God, but so is this other person and they desire unity too, even if that's obscured right now. That's incredibly helpful. Thank you for sharing that because I think this draws out a key difference that I hadn't understood or perhaps hadn't articulated between this Christian figure I mentioned at the start and the position of Paolo Pezzi, who was talking about the Ukrainian soldier looking down his gun, which is the first was talking on the level of ethics, of things we should do, strategies we should employ, behavior we should engage in. Paolo Pezzi was talking about ontology, what exists, the fact that the mystery is sustaining both of these soldiers in being. And as you were saying, they have the same heart. As I was saying, Christ died for them both, right? And so what can overcome division, but recognition of a fact that already is, that that we already are together in the mystery. Mm-hmm. And so the need for a new behavior, a new morality between us, a new way of approaching one another, reconciliation, that comes after but it's not something we start by building. It's something we start by recognizing. Like St. Paul says, we we are one body. Mm-hmm. I think without that recognition, as you were talking about, Julie, like a new gaze towards one another. I think without that, it quickly becomes this like white knuckling kind of effort on my part to try to just be nice, which is not enough. Yeah, that's so helpful because like talking about metaphysics can seem heady, but it actually has such like practical application in our lives, in our own experience. And to me, like what you said just resonates so much. And then also like the metaphysical understanding that God is love and everything that's created, everyone that's created is created in love. Even the souls in hell are sustained in being in love by the Father. Wow. The choice to be in hell, it's like the choice for eternal division from from the Father. Mm-hmm. Father Kevin Grove always used to say, heaven is what we become. Yes, and he would say, hell is eternal separation. And isn't that so much worse than like fire and brimstone? Yeah. Um, he would say, I'm sure he still says it. <laughs> Make him sound like he's like a blessed. <laughs> yeah. Thank you both for sharing your experiences. This is really helpful to me, in particular thinking about how our desire for un- unity and our need for unity comes from our identity in the image and likeness of God and comes from our destiny. We are destined for eternal union with him. And who is God but three persons in one? The complete and perfect union, such a perfect union that honestly we can't even understand it. This is one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. Mm. The human mind cannot understand how three persons can be one God. And that's the love we are called to participate in. And that's the love that made us I think that's why the union that we are made for is not possible without God. And it's also something that's never going to be satisfied on earth because that alone, the the mystery of the Trinity shows us that it's impossible for human beings to achieve among each other on our own. But I also want to thank you for talking about this new gaze on the other. Um, this is something that 
is very difficult to me. I think it doesn't come naturally to me. Sophia, you were talking about your anger. I want to talk about my inward gaze. Like when I have a wound, I just kind of sit there and I pick at it, especially if it's caused by somebody else, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I just like pick at it and I stare at it and I make it worse and worse and I just never let it heal. And if I just look away, it starts to heal, you know? Do you guys remember? Okay, I don't know. You you might not watch this TV show, but there's this Black Mirror episode. It's like technology dystopia TV show. And there's one episode where all the people have, they record what they see. It's just like your brain constantly records things and it's on videotape and you can go back and watch it mm. over and over again. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> this episode. And, and it tore apart relationships, right? And it really did because you could never forgive and you could never move on. And for example, couples would be torn apart because they could go back and watch like mm-hmm. 10 years ago, you did, you betrayed me in this one way and they would just stew on it. And honestly, like that's kind of my heart sometimes. But my experience shows me that turning my gaze away from myself and towards the other person, it is healing. I see this every time I go out in public with my baby daughter these strangers, people I see, person in line at the grocery store, person I see on his bike in the morning, these aren't people that have caused me wounds. But I still am generally thinking about myself and I still have an mm. inward gaze as I'm out and about doing these tasks. But just having her with me, like I see people's humanity. These are people that I don't, I wouldn't look at, I wouldn't talk to. Honestly, I can get kind of annoyed by small talk when I'm by myself. But she pulls both of us out of ourselves because people will smile at her. They'll share, they'll share things about their own children and their own past. They'll just make silly faces. That shows me we're, we all have the same heart. We love yeah. the purity of children and we're attracted to the purity of children and the joy that a, the gift of a new life is. And yeah, I've, just, I've had so many beautiful encounters with people where I've been able to look at a stranger and say, this person is good. This person is a child of God and God is acting in my life through them just by the fact of like having a baby with me. It's been really beautiful. It has really, it has really torn down divisions for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that, Julie. It reminded me of St. John Henry Newman, who when asked by somebody like, how do I have faith? He said, give alms. Mm. Bishop Barron talks about that a lot and just talks about like, go outside of yourself. Mm-hmm. If you want to become Christian, like lose sight of yourself, start doing good. And I think also that's so relevant in seeking unity in our own hearts and unity in the world is turning outward and like making a gift of yourself, even when you don't want to. And I think what could be helpful if you have like these really big wounding areas of division in your own life or relationships that perhaps like you can't even touch, maybe start just like so much smaller with tiny little ordinary details or the relationships Mm -hmm. where you can have opportunities for reconciliation and start there. For me, like it just seems I have like so many opportunities as a stay-at-home mom where I can seek forgiveness from my own children for like ways that I've lost my temper or nap time tends to be a very (laughs) (laughs) source of division frequent opportunity for me to later apologize and that is an easier space maybe than other relationships for me to seek forgiveness Mm -hmm. from my three-year-old and when I do do that I'm so humiliated in a humbling way by my own fallenness and the immediacy in which my son welcomes me with like such a tender embrace yeah and to his sorrow like at his hurt feelings or is really humbling like he's he's very 
honest. He has no other way to be like both that he completely forgives me, but that also that it hurt him that I maybe spoke more sternly than I should have. Yeah. A tremendous vulnerability. Yes. Yeah. And that serves as a catalyst for me to see other people in the same way as my sons and daughters or my brothers and sisters in Christ. Adriana, for me too, the need to seek forgiveness has been a really humbling experience in approaching my divisions with others because always what I ask, often (laughs) when I ask forgiveness from my husband, I say this, like, can we start over? Can we forget about that? Can we start over? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of an absurd request. What hypocrisy that that's my desire. Like, I want to start anew. Can we start again? Can we tear down these walls and pretend that they were never there? What hypocrisy to hold these divisions in my heart towards the other people and, then, and yet have this desire for newness. Like, I want Christ to make me new and I want him to make everything new. Like, that's my desire. Yes, and yet that's the impossible peace that Christ can bring. Yeah, it's, it's absurd. And it goes back to, I think, what you were saying about the Trinity, to be quite honest, because the absurdity that three can be one, that's the central mystery of our faith. And I love the connection that you both drew to self-gift in various ways, Julie in marriage, Adriana with your children, um, because just as this unity out of multiplicity in the Trinity overflows into giving life to creation, redeeming creation, drawing creation back to himself— I think so too, whenever we experience the same impossible unity among division, the impossible unity of a husband and wife who are not collapsed into one another in their becoming one flesh Mm -hmm. and in our families and in our communities, it has to flow forth. Um, As we were saying before, like it starts an ontology and then it becomes a behavior, a gift of self. And this is so different from what the world has to offer. Like, I don't know. I, I think back one of my <laughs> one of my experiences of division and trying to overcome division was on Outward Bound before I started college. Um, and for listeners who don't know, that's sort of a wilderness survival leadership thing where you spend a few weeks backpacking with total strangers in the mountains. As you can imagine, lots of division happens all the time. <laughs> and their mantra was always assume positive intent. That was what they told us to do. Always in- assume positive intent. And maybe I'm just a shitty person, but I can't do that. I'm like (laughs) deeply aware of the evil in my own heart and aware that evil lurks in other people's hearts too. Um, And so, yeah, for me, it's not enough to put on rose-colored glasses, but rather to see exactly what you were saying, that there is an essential unity in my heart and other people's heart. There is something between us ontologically that is the same. They're thirsting for God. Um, even if they express it in a way that to me is experienced as violence. And that that is the starting point that can abolish division. That is the starting point that can make me taste an impossible unity in relationship with them. And that when I do, this is what begets the kind of generosity that can make a three-week backpacking trip possible or make it possible to live in a house with people you know, from different countries and to live in a a lab where we're all from different backgrounds, but trying to pursue the same goal in science. Like it's everywhere in my life that I see that I need this. That's helpful. I, as soon as you said that, I thought also in our, in the MDiv, the Master Divinity Program, the first motto was assume the goodwill of the other. And a motto for an important reason, because after three years together, you're very tempted many a time not to assume the goodwill of your neighbor. Mm. (laughs) I mean, that's just so like, I think about it so often now, too, in marriage with my husband, like anytime 
we're in an argument or maybe he's like at a total disagreement of the path that I think we should take to first start with like what's the good that he sees in his and his plan yeah and what's the good that I see and then I'm so hyper aware that in the media there's an absolute refusal to see the goodwill of the other Mm -hmm. especially across political division yeah a lot of our discussion has been around a painful kind of division a wounded kind of division that comes from original sin but of course there are other forms of division that are just natural and even beautiful because it means through each of our individualized circumstances we can reflect some aspect of the face of god on earth And one thing that's been really powerful for me is to see those who accompany me in their journey towards Christ and to see that even though there are in some senses divisions between my journey and their journey, it is the same. And I had had this really powerful experience of this. I have a dear friend who was ordained, he became a deacon a couple of weeks ago, and I was not able to attend, but I watched his ordination live stream from here in California. It was a beautiful liturgy, stunning liturgy. And to watch my friend who struck me as transfigured by his love of God, Mm. to lay down his life for God and his people. I mean, it was was really stunning. But um, one moment in particular struck me on this theme of unity, and that was that one of the hymns that they sang in the liturgy was the same one that we had sung at our wedding mass. Oh, and amazing. Oh, God Beyond All Praising is really beautiful. It moves me to tears now when I hear it. But I was so struck by the unity of our vocations. And they look so different. They are so different. But they're both one in Christ, one in the church. It is all a gift from him. And my friend, through his vocation, is reflecting one aspect of the love of Christ, the bridegroom Mm -hmm. who laid down his life for the church. But my husband and I are reflecting a different aspect of the love, a Trinitarian love and union between two persons. I think that being able to see everybody's life as one journey to Christ it's really transformative. I think that too is a, is a way that I can tear down divisions in my heart and to realize that the goal is eternal life with Christ, nothing else. Like I don't need to make it more complicated. Um, and then if I have that gaze, then I can just rejoice in what the in what God is doing in the life of the person in front of me, um, no matter how different it looks. I see that precise mystery in two places in my life in particular. One is this charity that I volunteer with, uh, with folks with intellectual disabilities, because we are all so different in our verbal abilities, in the way that we experience the world, like in terms of our sensation and perception, in the way that we relate to one another, like all of these things. And yet it's so clear to me whenever we get together that God is drawing us each to himself along irreducibly unique paths. Mm -hmm. And the second I think that comes to mind in listening to you talk about Brian's ordination, so beautiful, was my experience at the Abbey of St. Walburga, where you have 30 nuns, you know, one who is a a former atheist who was a boxer in St. Louis, another one who's a pious young woman from like a rural homeschooled Catholic family with 15 kids. And then like you have the former Navy captain. And it's like, what on earth can hold these women together? Not just in like toleration, but love. But the fact that Christ has already won the victory, as you were saying, like 
He has already chosen and called each one of us to himself and joined us already into one body. It's already, in a sense, true that God is all in all. And so it's just a matter of begging that this unfolds completely, that he comes again to really finally Mm -hmm. bring this to completion. But as you were saying, there's so many places that, yeah, that we already see this impossible unity is present. I appreciate so much what you both are saying. And for me, I've reflected a lot like on how surprised I am, despite how much, even in this episode, I've talked about the cross, how surprised I am in practice when my discipleship leads to my life as a cross or the own cruciform shape that it takes. Mm. But I think recently what's been really such a like temptation to discouragement and almost like fatalism within me have been these two relationships which have been such icons of Christ beckoning for us. Seeing two of those friendships take steps away from their faith and no longer at least openly or actively following the church One, I'll share my cousin, who's one of my best friends, came into the church, and I was actually her confirmation sponsor. And then in the years that followed, had some really difficult circumstances Mm -hmm. in the military and mental health struggles that came upon her and drug addictions that eventually cost her her life. And I think there, in the years that have followed in grieving that, now I've found this new temptation to discouragement into like a fatalism, hmm. which I think is centered in what you've talked so much about, Julie, this like self-gazing because I see myself as the one that has to be the answer for her mm-hmm. and recalling that it's Christ who has already won the victory, Christ who is the answer in the beginning now and for all time, and that I can experience even now in this other new circumstance of my other friend who's no longer actively engaged in Christianity, experience that with love and compassion and freedom Mm -hmm. where I see in this previous relationship with my cousin, I had so much fear and I was so afraid and I so desperately like wanted to bring her back And to be able to find rest instead in the Father's love Mm. and rest in that the Father loves our freedom and both of these persons' freedoms so much and like given to me, I, you know, I don't, I'd rather take away their freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess to tie that to division and unity, it's really just that we can like look in the face of division and persistent division with love if we truly can rest in the promise of Christ and in the recognition that he's already won the battle. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I really appreciate your vulnerability and yeah, I'm really grateful to learn from that. Yeah. I feel like I came into this episode with a lot of questions and I'm leaving with a lot of experiences and insights to continue to ponder. Mm. And so I thank you both for that. And to that end, I would love to know if either of you has thought of a good weekly challenge for this week um, or media recommendation. I've got a weekly challenge. So I've been praying with John 17 while we all have in the liturgy lately. (laughs) Um, But I've been pondering Christ's final prayer being this plea to the Father that his disciples would be one and how 
we're not one. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so my weekly challenge would be to reflect on divisions among Christ's body in which we're all complicit and which we all have a, a responsibility to address for our own joy and our own fulfillment, as we were talking about before, that this is the desire of our hearts is unity, unity in the body, unity of the body with the head. And so, yeah, so I would invite all of our listeners to fast in some way for um, for unity, unity in the church. Um, I would say unity in places of conflict like Ukraine, unity in your life, like what it, whichever conflict feels for you the most impossible to overcome or the most urgent fast in some way, begging the Father to achieve unity there. Thank you, Sophia. That's really good. For a media recommendation, I had thought just during our discussion of A Good Man is Hard to Find. Ooh, yeah. It's a short story by Flannery O'Connor. If you haven't read it, I definitely recommend it. And Flannery is, on first glance, like sort of grotesque. She sort of deals in that in the Catholic world and difficult to understand. But I, it's such a story that's so obviously in chaos and each character is reckoning with their own divisions of their own hearts Mm. and i think the ending line for the grandmother aren't you just one of my babies her ability to really see the misfit for those who are familiar with the story he's a serial killer spoiler (laughs) and to see his dignity despite her going to her death if you've read flannery like this doesn't sound crazy what i'm saying if you haven't i definitely recommend her Thank you, Adriana. Thanks to all of our listeners for joining us today. Please feel free to reach out if you have any questions or comments or experiences to share with us. Please rate and review our podcast if you have enjoyed listening to it or share it with a friend. Um, And know of our prayers for you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.